pray real quick. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for getting to celebrate this morning with all of these songs. Um, thank you for a building to meet in and an air conditioner for guys who don't normally wear jackets. Pray that. Pray that as we transition into the proclaiming of your word, would you do something bigger than my feebleness could ever pull off? We need more wisdom than what I have. We need more grace than what I have. We need more eloquence than what I have. But you have all of those things to spare. And so, be with us in this moment and apply the word to our hearts in a way that only the Spirit ever could. Teach us by it, correct us by it, breathe life into us by it, make your name famous by it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's go Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah chapter 25. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we will have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, we also have some physical Bibles kind of scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats. And so if you don't own a Bible of your own, don't have a copy of God's Word that you get to call yours, uh, I would invite you to take that physical one home. The reason for that's incredibly simple. We say it every week around here, but we say it for a reason. Uh, we believe that God uses His Word, the Scriptures, in a very specific way. We believe that He uses it for all kinds of important things, but the chief reason that he uses it, the chief purpose that he has given it to us for is to make himself known to his people. It's through the scriptures that he reveals who he is, both character and work. And so if you want to know God, if you want everything in and around your life to be shaped by that knowing of him, it's the scriptures that he uses to do that in you and through you and around you. And so if you don't have a copy of God's word that you get to call yours, take that one. And even though this is a really fun day for the pastor, uh, that'll be the better part of my day if you take that home and start reading it. All right? That's a good thing. We believe that God will use it in a big way. So Isaiah chapter 25. Um, I don't want to take too long this morning. My effort today is going to be a little shorter than what we often normally spend in this time. And some of y'all who have been here for a long time know that that doesn't mean much. All right? uh, but like, I, I don't want to take too long. I, I really just kind of want to ask a question this morning. But it's a question that I think maybe today, days like today might be uniquely positioned to help us answer well. Uniquely positioned to help us answer well. The question is this. Do you think the world's broken? I think we have an answer. Now, I'm fully aware. I mean, I'm definitely aware. I watch the news. I read the paper. I'm de I get on... You know, social media, I'm, I'm definitely aware that there are people who would try to spin that question for their own, I think, not good purposes, whether it's politics or economics or whatever current social controversy you might want to bring up. There are talking heads, a long line of them everywhere that would try to hijack that question and use it to kind of whip up their base, right? We've all seen it. Maybe we've fallen victim to it. That's not what I'm aiming at here this morning, though I think the the, the fact that that is a potential thing I could aim at kind of helps prove the point I am aiming at this morning. If we, if we lay all those current cultural debates aside for just a second and we paint with the broadest brush that we possibly can, are, are we all in agreement here that we can look around and see a very, very long list of things in our world that seem to work the exact opposite of the way we think they ought to work? 
We're all, we're all there, right? It's not hard to come up with a list. Not, not just the way we wish they would go, but like, like I'm talking about the obvious brokenness of design, right? I surely can't, this can't be how it's supposed to be kind of moment of realization. We all see that, right? We all feel the, the weight of that. And we, we can talk about the small scale stuff, like, like, like people we're supposed to be able to put our trust in, but they never seem to come through, whether that's you know, local politicians, bad bosses, deadbeat dads. Like, like we got a long list of those stories, but we can also talk about the bigger, more culture-wide stuff, right? I mean, I mean, we live in an age where, as a culture, we seem to fight over every possible thing, right? Have you noticed that? Even the stuff that is obviously petty. Why, why would we do that? Well, it's because it's we can't give up ground to the other team. It's kind of trench warfare over social media, right? We have to fight for every inch. We find ourselves living in a world where it's not enough to just disagree with someone. If we want to maintain credibility with our tribe, we have to go attack that other one, Right? vilify that person, make them suffer in some kind of way, usually by robbing them of personhood. On the backside of, a, of what I think nobody would argue were a couple of exhausting years in 2020 and 2021, on the backside of dealing with COVID and a host of other nonsense, instead of finding some rest from that storm, we were instead met with an unjust war in Ukraine with prices skyrocketing everywhere and with stinking Tom Brady coming out of retirement. Can't catch a break. For some of us, it is clear that the world is broken. All right? It does not work the way that it used to, the way that we think it ought to. There's another question we could ask. I think there's another, a second layer question. Do you you think that brokenness is unique to our current cultural moment? Meaning, do you think we're the first generation to feel this frustrated by the brokenness of the world? The obvious answer is no, right? Obviously no. The older you are in this room, the more uh, the older you are in this room, the more presidents you've had to be frustrated with, right? Not just the current one, it's not the one before, it's all of them. The more people you've watched abuse new things like technology and media, the older you are, the more stories you could probably share of where you put your hope and your trust in something and then the brokenness of the world bore its weight upon that something and it wrecked everything, right? And that's just the zero to 80 crowd. Wars and rumors of wars have been going on a lot longer than that. I want to use our time together this morning to point us to something that compared to this current cultural moment, is, is pretty ancient. Um, it's got pretty deep roots. It's found in the Old Testament, Old Testament book of Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet who lived about 750-ish years before Jesus stepped onto the scene. God had raised him up to speak on his behalf to the southern nation of Judah during a time period when there was a whole lot of upheaval in the world. A lot of things turning upside down. It was during Isaiah's lifetime that the northern kingdom of Israel fell to the growing Assyrian Empire. Isaiah uh, was also around to see uh, Assyria's borders creep closer and closer to the southern kingdom, closer and closer to the city of Jerusalem. In fact, at one point it got within eight miles of Jerusalem's walls. 
If you're worried about the ruthless empire that's liking to, that likes to take over other people's countries and they're eight miles from your main city, you're kind of worried about that empire. He also saw one of the worst kings of Judah, a guy named Ahaz, make alliances with Assyria that pretty much turned Judah into a vassal state. Then um, Ahaz sends scholars off to Assyria's capital to learn how the Assyrians worship their false gods so they can bring that worship back to Jerusalem. Fun guy that Ahaz. After that, though, Ahaz dies and his son, Hezekiah, one of the best kings of Judah, he kicks all the pagan idolaters out and refuses to do what Assyria wants him to do. And so how do you think the ruthless empire responded to that? They try to sack the city of Jerusalem. Don't worry, though, because um, a serious king is a moron named Sennacherib, and he makes the mistake of taunting God and God's inability to protect Judah from what he was about to do to them. I think God responded to that. <laughs> We're told in Isaiah 37 that God strikes down 185,000 of their 200,000 troops in their sleep. The remaining army, about 15,000 worth, wakes up the next morning and decides, you know what, it's time to go home. Sennacherib goes off to his home with his tail tucked between his legs and a couple of his sons murder him because, well, we can't have a daddy who's a failure, right? And that's how Sennacherib comes to his end. So what, what does all that mean? Like that, that's, a, that's a weird history full of a lot of ups and downs. The, the book of Isaiah consists of several oracles, several visions over several decades, some 50 to 80 years, depending on how you count things, that include both some, some really, really tragic moments and some amazing, can only count it up to God kind of victories. Isaiah gets to see both of those things, but even in those victories, Judah is still kind of stained by sin and brokenness. So they have terrible dark moments and really great moments that just aren't quite exactly what they hoped it would be. As the brokenness ebbs back and forth between being far away and then being really, really close to home, God raises up Isaiah to point his people to a better hope. An eternal hope to point them to the coming of an otherworldly Messiah who willingly steps into the brokenness and does something about it. That's Isaiah's message. And it's here that we get to look at Isaiah 25 this morning. The build up to chapter 25, um, God has been pronouncing future judgment on a number of kingdoms surrounding the nation of Judah. Not only the big ones like Assyria and Egypt and Babylon, but also the smaller ones that are around too. Moab, Tyre and Sidon, Cush. And so everybody's getting judgment. It's great. But then in chapter 24, God promises judgment on the entire earth. That sounds fun, right? You get judgment and he gets judgment. We all get judgment. Yeah! You're thinking to yourself, oh, man, that seems kind of harsh. Like, like why, wouldn't, why wouldn't he just punish the wicked kingdoms? God really is just. I mean, he should, he should probably just focus his attention on the bad guys in the story, right? And the problem with that is you is one of the bad guys. 
In verses 5 and 6 of chapter 24, Isaiah says, The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. So what does that mean? It means that Judah, God's covenant people, whether you want to talk about the good moments or the not-so-good moments, Even Judah is guilty of sin. Judah is guilty of adding to the brokenness. Adding to the curse. They were not innocent bystanders in a world that was broken by someone else's sin. They were contributors to the brokenness. In the same way, we can can point to pretty dark moments. We can point to maybe some pretty victorious moments. But we're not innocent bystanders either. We're contributors. The brokenness of our world ebbs back and forth between being far away and being close to home. And if we're really honest, like, like sometimes it's as close as our very own hearts. Right? Sometimes is an insufficient word. It's, it's in our own hearts. And so I don't think it's going too far out on a limb this morning to, to assume that the longing exists in each and every one of us to finally find a cure for the brokenness. Right? I feel it. I have no doubt that you feel it too. And Isaiah feels it as he's entering into chapter 25. Look at it with me. Chapter 25, verse 1. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and just kind of say the quiet thing out loud. This feels like a weird response to the promise that one day the entire earth will suffer under the righteous judgment of God's wrath. Right? We all on the same page about that? Did you read it? I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things. Who's ready to celebrate God's wrath? Where in the world does Isaiah get off celebrating God after such a promise? Where does that come from? I mean, is Isaiah kind of shutting his eyes and stopping his ears to what he just heard and saw? Is he refusing to actually pay attention to the tragic news? Well, I think his celebration is birthed out of what's found after the comma there. Plans formed of old, faithful, and sure. Um, See, Isaiah knows and trusts that his vision is is not some some fly-off-the-handle moment of a God who suddenly turned around and didn't like what he saw. And so he decided to act. An oracle about the future divine judgment on all of sin. It doesn't hit Isaiah as some kind of surprise. Why not? Because these are plans formed of old. As faithful and sure as God himself is. Uh, For at least as long as there has been sin in the world, there has also been a plan to deal decisively with that sin. To finally and forever put away that sin. And to forever put away that sin's repercussions. 
Isaiah is given a vision of a far-off coming day when God will finally and forever act on righting the brokenness that plagues the entire world. He sees it and he is moved to exaltation and praise by it. Look what happens in verse 2. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Verse 3. Therefore strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. So Isaiah points to a city that has been left reduced to a heap of rubble. And, and so it's the same city that he refers back to in chapter 24, verse 10, where he calls it a wasted city is broken down. So what's that about? Does, does God have something against cities filled with foreign people? Just the opposite, actually. If you were here last week, we talked about Jesus going out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Do you remember that? When we were talking about self-control, we looked at Jesus' temptation in the wilderness in Matthew 4. And we said then that when the Bible talks about the wilderness, it's intentionally pointing it out as a place that is away from civilization, away from safety, and away from provision. Right? Well, guess what the opposite of the wilderness is? It's a city. The city has walls to protect you from the bad guys. The city has a people that are united by a common identity as citizens of that city, seeking the welfare of that city. The city has the stuff you need for, uh, for you to make a life for yourself and for your family. The city is a good place. The book of Revelation ends with a city, holy city, descending down from the clouds, built by God, where we will all rest and worship and serve the Lord forever. Cities are a good thing in the Bible. But in chapters 24 and 25, Isaiah points to a city that wasn't built by God. It was built upon false, sinful realities. It was built upon those who intentionally postured themselves as being against God and against his people. And so instead of that city providing peace and safety and provision, we're told that God judges that city and leaves them in ruins. The wall is torn down, the palace is no more, and it will never again be rebuilt. And then in verse 3, he says, therefore. Therefore, because of that leveling of the false city, because of the humbling carried out by the holy hand of the Lord, the sinful nations that once raged against God and his people will instead bring him glory by fearing him correctly. And then we see verse 4. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall. Like, the, like heat in a dry place, you subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. Everything the false city is trying to be for a wicked people, the Lord actually is and does for the poor and needy. Strong people attempted to build strongholds for themselves, but the Lord is a stronghold to the weak, a shelter and a shade to those in distress. That's not all he is. Look at the next verse, verse 6. On this mountain... 
The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, aged wine well refined. So a couple of shifts have occurred over the course of this vision. I don't know if you caught it, you probably did. The shifts, it shifts from the judgment of sin to protecting the vulnerable from those who would seek to do them harm. But now there's a second shift to the blessing of all peoples, Right? So we get this trajectory here from judgment of sin to protection of the weak to the blessing of all peoples. God apparently, he apparently makes a spectacular feast on top of a mountain. That sounds kind of fun. I want to be there. What mountain? Well, it's identified for us in the very last verse of chapter 24. God is reigning for Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. That's the mountain. And so Isaiah tells us, Isaiah tells us about this amazing feast full of incredibly fine food full of rich marrow. We don't talk like that anymore. Tells us about a a well-refined, aged wine. What does that mean? It means that this ain't no slap-together affair. There's some thought in this. God pulled out the best stuff. Why would he do that? Because this is the feast to end all feasts. There's no better occasion to hold the good stuff back for. We're pulling out the stops. Bring the best meat. Bring the best wine. This is the occasion to celebrate. The same vision tells us that God will finally bring about his promised judgment upon sin and upon the brokenness of the world is also the vision that points us to the forever joy and rest on the other side of that judgment. Right? But how in the world... How in the world could that rest and joy last forever? I mean, eventually you run out of wine, right? Eventually you got to stop sucking the marrow out of the bone. How in the world could that forever rest and joy actually last forever? Well, because of what, what comes next in verse 7. Verse 7 And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. Look at verse 8. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Verse 9, it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Church, the wages for sin is what? Death. Period. There's no let's talk about this. No, the Bible is spoken. The wages of sin is death. The thing properly earned for sin. My sin, your sin, our all sin. uh, The thing properly earned for sin is death. That death was promised all the way back in the garden. All the way back in the garden. And from that moment that Adam failed, the pall of death, the veil of death has hung over all of humanity as a curse for sin. It is spread over all peoples and it is spread over all nations. One, because we have inherited Adam's failure. As our representative head, he failed in sin on our behalf. But two, because we have contributed to the brokenness. We is one of the bad guys in the story. 
And Isaiah pictures a coming day. He has a vision of a coming day when that veil is swallowed up finally. Where death itself is swallowed up and that the Lord will wipe away every tear from every face. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a really good day. I don't know about you, but in in the middle of a world that's clearly broken, I kind of wish that day would hurry up and get here. Anybody else? I long, I mean deeply long for the day when we can forever proclaim, behold, this is our God. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. How could we ever trust that that day would actually get here? I mean, it sounds like a really great thing, but like Isaiah had that vision a really long time ago. And I'm looking around, there's still a whole lot of brokenness around here. It's in me, let alone everywhere else I look. How can we, how can we trust that that day is actually coming? You want to know? Because of what we're celebrating this morning. Because of what we're celebrating here this morning. Hold your finger in Isaiah, and we're going to come back to it in just a second. But turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We want to read you something that's going to sound a little more familiar to the Easter crowd. All right. We're going to start in verse 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 20. Give you a second. Some of you just typed it in. Some of you actually having to turn physical pages in a Bible. Paul says this, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Verse 21, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Verse 24, then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is what? Death. All right, so Paul calls the resurrection of Jesus firstfruits. Meaning, if Jesus has been raised, then those who belong to him will also one day be raised. It is a down payment for our promise of our own resurrection. That's what Paul's saying there. That's really good news. We've talked at other times and other Easter's before how that's the kind of good news that literally changes everything about your life. It changes what you value. It changes what you you chase after and pursue in your life. It changes what you aim at for forever. Jesus being the first fruits of our own future resurrection is really, really good news. But that is not the only good news that Paul just mentioned in what we read. That's a good first thing, but there was a second piece of good news. I don't know if you caught it. Paul also says in verses 25 and 26 that as the one who conquered sin and death, Jesus is working right now to bring all things under his lordship. He says subjection to his kingdom, we're told. And when he finishes that work, church, when he finishes that work, when he finishes what he began, he will will also do what he started with his own resurrection and defeat the very last enemy, death itself. 
See, Paul and Isaiah, they're talking about the same moment. They're talking about the exact same moment. In fact, Paul quotes Isaiah 25 a little later in verses 54 and 55. We never got there because there's a lot to read before then. But he taunts the personification of death by saying, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? We sang about it earlier. When Jesus finishes his work, we will finally see what Isaiah saw all those years ago. That's what Paul's saying. See, what we celebrate every single Easter is the down payment of a far, far bigger future promise. Do you feel the burden of a broken world? And I do. Do you find yourself constantly frustrated, not only by the brokenness you see around you, but by the brokenness you can't seem to help but contribute to? I do. There's coming a day with a capital D when the world will not be broken anymore. Death will be swallowed up and every single tear will be wiped away forever. No more talking heads. No more cultural debates uh, that devolve into pettiness. No more deadbeat dads or local politicians. And no more moments. Not a single one where you look at the world and go, this can't be right. This can't be the way it's supposed to be. No, what was broken in Genesis 3 will be finally, and hear me church, forever undone. God will dwell eternally with his people. The well-aged wine will flow. The marrow will be full and tasty. And we will forever declare, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. If you know him, Church, if you know him, then your prayer this moment is the same as the Apostle John's at the end of the Revelation. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Get here as soon as you can. Come now if you want. Let's go. I'm ready. You long for that day to hurry up. But there is a question that remains to be answered this morning. We kind of danced around it, but we never have actually hit it. We feel the weight of that question in the three verses in Isaiah that we haven't read yet. So turn back there with me. We've gotten some really good news, but Isaiah 25 isn't done. Look at verse 10. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place, as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it, as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. And the, high, and the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground, to the dust. The sinless, deathless, tearless, never more broken happily ever after. That's a, that's a good promise. And hear me church, it is for all peoples. But it is not for all people. 
It is for all peoples, but it is not for all people. This is not a Jewish story. God is bringing the nations into his forever kingdom. Uh, this, God, this has been God's plan from before the foundation of the world, and he will be forever glorified by the parade of peoples that he has seen fit to save. It is a good promise of a coming heaven that he has seen fit to draw into his good kingdom. God is saving a people from himself, for himself from all peoples, but there is a category of people who will not taste the joy and the rest. You follow me? It is those who choose to hang on to their pompous pride. It is those who choose to hang on to their self-righteous belief in their own skill. It is those who continue trying to build their own false cities and fortifications. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, the one who reigns on top of Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, he calls you to submit yourself to his lordship. Period. The Bible teaches that all peoples by default are separated relationally from God because of our sin, the, the sin nature that we've inherited and the sin that we've contributed to the pile. And we are owed the just and right punishment for that sin, death hangs over us like a curse. But the Bible also teaches that God is rich in mercy and that he loves us with a great love that even when we were dead in our sins, by his grace, God makes us alive. God sent his son, Jesus. He put on flesh and he dwelt among us. He lived the sinless life that neither you nor I have ever got a shot of living up to. He died on the cross. We celebrated Friday night. He died on the cross as an innocent substitute to make full and final payment for your sin. And this morning, we celebrate that he was raised again from the dead. Not, not only as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness, but also as a down payment of a future promise of swallowing up death forever. It's a good day. And now as the king who has conquered and will one day forever conquer both sin and death. He calls on you in this very moment to respond to him in repentance and in faith, to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. You can do that today. You can do that anytime you want, but now's a really good day to do it. I'd love to be helpful to you. Whatever way I can, you want to talk about what that response of faith looks like, let's, let's talk about it. You can catch me right after we're done here. What if you're here this morning and you're already a follower of Jesus? What do we do? How can we respond to God's, morning, uh, God's word this morning? Well, we have heard the promise of a coming happily ever after. I think it's probably fitting to celebrate like that promise is as good as done. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Normally our, our time of response is a little more somber and introspective. doesn't fit for today. Today we celebrate. So let's pray and do that. We're going to go big. Father, thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for massive promises from a couple thousand years ago. Every generation and every culture, especially our own, we feel the weight of the brokenness. We contribute to the brokenness. I am guilty, not just my culture. And I long for the day when you will make all things new. 
where you will undo the curse of sin and repair a broken world. But God, it is only by your grace and the work of your Son that I get to be on the good side of that judgment. So thank you for sending your Son not only to die in my place, but to be raised to new life so that I might have life too. Father, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known in this moment? Open eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to know you. Call new peoples into your kingdom this morning for the glory of your name. As we sing and we celebrate, may you inhabit the praise of your people. Help us to see and understand that your promises are good and sure and from of old. And that you are the one who will forever get the glory for making all things new. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.